Okay, please remain standing and turn with me to the opening chapter of Romans. I'm, I'm getting very excited. We'll be returning to this chapter in the fall when we start a, our fall sermon series on the book of Romans. But today it's our New Testament reading in preparation for um, Habakkuk, continuing our study of Habakkuk. And it's, uh, it's really helpful that we can be studying Habakkuk now because... <clears throat> Um, Paul's sort of text for the entire book of Romans is drawn from Habakkuk chapter 2 in the passage that we're going to consider today. So let's um, read the context for his quotation of that passage here in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Let's turn now to Habakkuk, chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off last time with verse 12 and read through chapter 2, verse 4. The bulletin says verse 20, but... That just was not realistic. We're going to stop at verse 4 and continue the rest of the chapter next week. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord... You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. 
You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he makes sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Amen. You may be seated. We ended last time on a little bit of a cliffhanger. Habakkuk asked the Lord a question, verses 2 to 4, and the Lord responded. Uh, but, but God's response there in verses 5 through 11 really and raised more questions than it answered. Habakkuk had said, Lord, look at all these awful things that are happening in Judah and Jerusalem. Everywhere he looks, the prophet sees violence, he sees destruction, injustice. The government isn't operating the way that it should. Ungodly people are getting ahead, oppressing the people who are trying to do the right thing. Justice goes forth perverted. And it feels like God simply doesn't notice any of this and as though God isn't planning to do anything about it. O Lord, how long? Habakkuk prays. And the Lord answers him in verses 5 through 11, essentially saying, just you wait. In fact, you're not going to believe this, but I'm actually planning to use Babylon, the Chaldean army, to bring down the hammer of judgment on Judah and on the royal family of Jehoiakim. That judgment is coming. The Lord does see what's going on. He is going to bring justice. But as the Lord uh, starts to describe that coming judgment, there's another set of questions that starts to arise, um, especially when the Lord gets to the end and he says, uh, so these Chaldeans who are going to overrun Judah and Jerusalem are, he says, guilty men, verse 11, whose own might is their God. And so Habakkuk thinks, now wait a second, how can that be? Why would God be planning to use these guilty, arrogant people who basically worship their own strength 
as his tool of judgment against his covenant people. And that's what Habakkuk is following up on in this second question today. I'm going to give you the three headings I'm going to use to organize uh, the passage first. Number one is going to be a perfect purity, verses 12 to 13. Number two will be the prophet's problem, from there up through chapter 2, verse 1. And then number three, patience for the promise, chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. So a perfect purity, the prophet's problem, and patience for the promise. So Habakkuk begins here in verse 12 by describing what he knows about the character of God. And that is solid solid ground for anyone to stand on. Uh, Habakkuk, what he's trying to do is he's trying to compare what he doesn't know, what he doesn't understand, to what he does know, to what God has revealed clearly about himself. Lord, I know that you are this kind of God. I know that. So please help me to see how this plan that you've just stated um, is consistent with that character because it's frankly hard for me to see how these things match up. And this, by the way, is a great principle for you when you pray. We should frequently pray the attributes of God back to him. The prophets do it. The Psalms do it, saying, Lord, this is who you are. This is what you've said about yourself in your word. Um, We talked about this a couple weeks ago in the evening service on Psalm 54. So often our prayers should be saying to God, Lord, be true to yourself. Be who you are. Be that towards me right now in this circumstance. We don't want to understand, we should not misunderstand this back and forth between God and his prophet. Uh, Habakkuk is not being kind of petulant or, or whiny here, saying, God, that's not fair, um, in some kind of shallow way like that. He's saying, Lord, here's what you've just told me. Here's what I already know about you. I don't see how they match up. Please help me to put them together. Okay, so he starts by acknowledging God's eternity. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? And the next line that says, uh, we shall not die. Um, some translations would put there, you shall not die. Um, that would, If that's correct, to be just continuing that idea of God's eternity. No beginning and then no end on the other side. Um, if, if the ESV is correct with we shall not die, uh, then the point is, he's saying, I, I know that Judah is not going to go extinct. And I know that because of God's covenant promises, which are as lasting as God is. Because the Lord is eternal, his, that means that his promises are durable. And so, I, I know that this Babylonian invasion cannot mean the total end of the covenant people altogether. But if that's not what it means, then what does it mean? So Habakkuk saying, Lord, I, I get, in, in the next verse, um, well, in the second half of verse 12, he's saying, Lord, I, I get that you're saying you've ordained the Chaldeans as a judgment. You, O rock, have established them for reproof. These, these wicked Babylonians apparently are going to be your instrument of judgment against Judah and its king. That much is clear. But how can that be? 
And here, Habakkuk appeals to another attribute of God. He says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Okay, so the prophet here is appealing to the holiness of God. The holiness of God, particularly in the sense of God's perfect purity. God is so holy, so intensely uh, glorious, so intensely um, set apart from the world in, in his... Um, uh, in his, in, his, in his glory and greatness um, that uh, separates him from all of creation, that comes to bear in a particular way in God's relationship with evil, in such a way that evil cannot exist in God's presence without meeting with his perfect justice. His holiness is a just holiness. His justice is a holy justice. And so if the if the sinless angels, you think about the seraphim who cover their faces in God's presence, um, in the presence of his glory in the heavenly throne room like Isaiah sees and like John sees. If the angels have to veil their faces in the presence of God, and they're, and they're sinless, right? how much worse off must sinful human beings be in that same holy presence of the Lord. And that's why in Isaiah 6, the prophet there, when he sees that vision of the holy throne room of God, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost or, or undone. He feels like he's disintegrating, like he's coming apart in the presence of this holy God. Why? He says, Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But if that's true, then how could God tolerate using these people like the Chaldeans to judge Judah? And to Habakkuk, that doesn't make sense. Maybe it doesn't make sense to you, which is why this passage is here for us. He's saying, Lord, if you're of purer eyes than to see evil, then how can you tolerate the wickedness of this pagan empire while you're in the process of bringing judgment against Judah? Um... After all, I mean, Habakkuk's thinking, I know Judah has gotten pretty bad, okay? I will admit things are pretty bad in Judah. There's great wickedness here. There's idolatry, the whole nine yards. But surely we're not as bad as the Babylonians. This pagan empire, it's not even pretending to have any relationship to the one true God. He says, why do you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Not that Judah is all that great, but at least there are some righteous, faithful people in Judah uh, like the prophet and others who share his uh, loyalty to the Lord. They are the covenant people, after all. And God has made all those covenant promises too. And Babylon is just a different, a whole different level of evil and wickedness. And in fact, in the second section here, Habakkuk goes on to elaborate just how bad the Babylonians are. Okay, so we were at Collier Lake last Monday. We went for a little hike as a family. And while I was there, uh, that, that lake is uh, overseen by the Fish and Boat Commission. And I was reading some of the signage they had posted about the creel limits for uh, panfish and bass and trout and so on. How many of each fish you're allowed to catch in a day. Um, and you can imagine if uh, somebody didn't want to follow those regulations and 
Um, they, they go out there and they use all kinds of illegal fishing methods, nets and dynamite and everything, just to get as many fish as they can. And they scoop them all up to the shore. They've taken all the fish and they cook a few for themselves. They sell a few. They let the rest go to waste. Well, that would be a serious problem, right? That would be a serious problem for the rest of us. We wouldn't get to, able to enjoy the lake, enjoy fishing as much. It would be even even more serious problem for the fish, right? And it would be a serious crime. Well, here the, the prophet is comparing Babylon to a fisherman who's going out there and he's catching all the nations that he can with his hook and his nets. And he's using them all to prop up his own luxury, his own power at their expense. And worst of all, when he does this, when he gets all of this wealth and power at the expense of the nations, he doesn't acknowledge the Lord at all. Babylon is not even trying, not even pretending to act under the authority of the Lord. Instead, he, he pulls that net up out of the water, shakes all the fish out, and he says, Ah, my net has given me all this wealth. He makes a sacrifice to that. That net is his God. Remember, these are guilty men whose own might is their God, verse 11. And so Habakkuk is, in a sense, simply reiterating, actually, what God has already said about these people. On top of their violence and theft and tyranny, they add their worst offense of all, which is their idolatry, their offense against the, directly against the Lord. And, and you can imagine Habakkuk thinking, wait a second, what about all the times the Lord's told us how much he hates idolatry? How a big reason why this judgment is coming on our nation is because of our idolatry. Something doesn't seem to fit. How long is this, how long is this going to go on? That's a big part of his question. He, he wants to know, is Babylon just going to keep doing this forever and get away with it? Are they going to keep emptying their net, keep mercilessly killing nations over and over and over again without ever being held accountable? Because that's what it looks like at this moment in history. There doesn't see, seem to be any end. Because Babylon is going to be the top dog in the region, top of the food chain. So that's Habakkuk's question. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he begins to wait expectantly for the Lord's answer. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Here, it's a good reminder that Habakkuk is asking these pointed questions of the Lord in the context of his prophetic office. As a prophet, he's asking these questions. In Isaiah 21, the Lord describes Isaiah as a watchman for Israel. Remember, a a prophet is one of the three kinds of mediators in the Old Testament between God and his people. There There were the prophets, the priests, and the kings, these go-betweens, these people who, in various ways, represented God to the people and represented the people to God. Now, think about what a watchman does. He stands on the wall as a representative of the people down below in the city, right? Uh, You don't have to have all of the soldiers up there standing on the wall watching out because it is this one soldier's job to do that on their behalf, to watch and to tell them if anything important happens, to tell them what he sees, and hears. And in Isaiah 21, Isaiah the watchman writes particularly, 
What I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you as part of the prophet's task, as the representative of the people to God and of God to the people. He's a watchman. Now, Habakkuk shares that same prophetic office Isaiah had. And in this exchange, he is representing the people to God with his question. And he also knows that he's going to be responsible to carry God's answer to the people as God's representative to them. And that's why he described himself as standing at his watch post, watch post, stationing himself on the tower, and he's waiting for God's answer. Notice carefully, um, Habakkuk then is not trying to ask God a kind of like, gotcha question. Um, sometimes people ask questions when they've already made up their minds. They're hostile questions. Even dishonest questions because they don't really want to know the answer. They're asking the question just to make a point. Just to show how right they are and how foolish the other person is. But that is not the way that Habakkuk is asking this question of God. He is asking expectantly. He is trusting that there will be an answer, even though he does not see what it is. And maybe he's even gotten to the point where, wow, I, I can't even imagine what God's answer could possibly be to this one. But he's going to take his stand on the watchtower, and he's going to wait expectantly for the Lord's answer. going to look out to see what he will say to me. And I want to encourage you, this is a, a good way for you to approach your questions, a good way for you to approach reading the Word of God. It's a good way for you to listen to the preaching of the Word. You should not come to these encounters with God's Word with your mind made up already. You should not come with an attitude of suspicion that you've already determined beforehand. What you should do is you should come expecting to find the answers. And yet, on the other hand, not assuming you already know what those answers will be. Okay, what you want to do when you encounter God's word is to expect to be challenged, expect to be corrected, expect even to be contradicted, to have your perspective changed by God's word. But whatever you do, expect him to answer. Like Samuel, our attitude should be, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. This is like what the church father Augustine called faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding. Or what Anselm a few centuries later was getting at when he said, I do not understand in order that I may believe. Rather, I believe in order that I might understand. For if I do not believe, I will never understand. Some of the reassuring good news of this passage is that the Lord indeed does answer Habakkuk. And today we're not going to cover the whole answer. Again, I was overly ambitious when I thought I'd finish chapter 2. Uh, we're going to deal just with the way God introduces his answer in verses 2 through 4, which we're calling patience for the promise. Okay, so the Lord starts here by emphasizing that what he's about to say is not going to be some kind of um, secret, hidden insight. 
that's accessible only to some really smart or, or some really super spiritual people. It's, it's not going to be complicated. It's going to be something simple and public that you can take in at a glance, like, like reading a, a really well-designed billboard as you drive down the interstate. You can see the whole thing. You get the message, even if you're driving 70 miles an hour. You write the vision, he says, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. Write it so that somebody can read it, even if they're running past you. God's answer is going to be as plain as his word has always been in terms of its central message. It's like he says in Deuteronomy 30, this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven, oh no, who will bring it down for us? It's not beyond the sea, oh no, who's going to go over and get it for us and bring it back? The word is very near to you, God says. It is in your mouth and in your heart. This is what we were talking about the other day in adult Sunday school, about the clarity of God's word. How God's word is not a code to be cracked. It is a great, big, plainly written sign showing exactly what God wants you to know about him and his law and his gospel. Its basic message is clear. So what this vision represents, the the plan that God is about to reveal about the future, goes on to say, now, it's not going to be set in motion right away. It is something that God's people are going to have to wait for. To wait for. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie In other words, the the time gap between promise and fulfillment is intentional. It's part of the plan. It doesn't mean that something has gone wrong. Um, That gap also does not make the fulfillment any less certain. Rather, he says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. In other words, he's saying, when when you see the wicked Babylonians overrunning Judah, you shouldn't assume that that's the end of the story, that that's the last act. You shouldn't assume that they're getting away with it. They're not. It's simply that the Lord is doing one thing at a time. The judgment on Judah by means of Babylon is God's plan for the near future. The judgment on Babylon is coming. It will just come later. God's people are going to have to wait for it with patience. See, Habakkuk is not wrong about Babylon. And that, the Lord acknowledges at the beginning of verse 4. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And it is precisely that attitude of Babylon that guarantees that God's judgment will finally fall on him. So that is the way that the Lord always deals with the arrogance and rebellion of sinful people. Then in the second half of verse 4, there's this unexpected, and I, I think just rhetorically brilliant turn that the Lord makes here. So he suddenly turns the tables on Habakkuk and on everybody who, who shares Habakkuk's questions. So yes, Babylon is arrogant, puffed up. Yes, Babylon is going to come under judgment because of its pride. But what about you, my prophet? What about you, 
my people? Where is your heart? What is your attitude towards me? We're very familiar with the second half of this verse because of the way the New Testament uses it. Paul uses it in Romans 1, Galatians 3. It's also quoted in Hebrews 10. And so when we read, the righteous shall live by his faith, um, get just that phrase in our minds, uh, especially um, as Reformed Protestants, our minds jump straight to the, the fully formed Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone, right? Amen. Hallelujah. That we're forgiven, we're declared righteous by God, not because of our works, but because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, because of his perfect record of righteousness throughout his life that's given freely to us as we receive it through faith alone. Amen. All true. And all of that is in great harmony with this passage. Also, we should slow down and we should ask, now, that's, we understand the teaching of the whole Bible on this subject. It's how Paul especially develops it in the New Testament. And it is also the teaching of the Old Testament. So we see it in seed form in various places, including here, including in Genesis and, and many other um, passages. But we should also realize that God is teaching Habakkuk something in particular. He's not just teaching him this abstract doctrine of justification by faith alone that's just out here in a confession of faith somewhere. And he's like, oh, here's this piece of doctrine you should know, Habakkuk. He's teaching Habakkuk something that's, that's embodied in a particular time and place and experience of God's people here in the, in the uh, 7th century. And we're going to gain a richer understanding of this passage and of the New Testament development of it if we can look at the details here and not just, I don't want to preach Romans when I'm preaching Habakkuk. And I think the key to understand the uniqueness of what God's teaching here in Habakkuk is to read the second half of the verse in light of the first half of the verse and the surrounding context. I think we need to ask, what is the opposite of the puffed-up pride of Babylon? What's the opposite of the puffed-up pride of Babylon? What is God in this passage calling Habakkuk and his followers to embrace in particular? And I'd say the answer is this. God is calling Habakkuk and his followers to a patient, trusting expectancy as they wait with steady confidence and hope for the promises of God. Let me say that again. He is calling them to a patient, trusting expectancy as they wait with confidence and hope for the promises of God. I think if we get that here in Habakkuk, it will greatly enrich our understanding of Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. And it will greatly deepen our understanding of that great Reformation doctrine of justification through faith alone. And see, here's the reason, one of the reasons I'm laboring this, is that doctrine gets misunderstood sometimes. Misunderstood as though we'll be saved if we just assent to certain facts about Jesus. Yeah, I believe that. I believe the story of the gospel. I believe everything in the Apostles' Creed. I think that's true. 
and so I'm safe, I'm good to go. That's, that's not really how the Bible describes saving faith. Saving faith is not assent to several points of doctrine. It is a patient, trusting expectancy as we rest personally in what God has done for us in Christ and as we look forward with confident trust to what God is going to do in the future just as he's promised. It is resting patiently in the promises of God now given to us all the more fully in Christ. And yes, that means, among other things, not relying on our own works, our own obedience. Because if we're relying on our own works, on our own obedience, thinking, I can obey God enough to be saved, well, that's being puffed up. That's being arrogant, right? That's being like the Babylonians. If we're trying to be saved by our works, our hearts are not upright within us. But the emphasis here in Habakkuk, I think, is more directly related to what Romans 8 describes when it says that if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Waiting with patience. For that unseen reality, that's what faith is all about, right? It's about embracing, on the basis of the word of God, things that we do not yet see, but that we trust him for. That's what the Lord is calling Habakkuk here, and all of the faithful in Judah, too. As they wait for God to make right all the things that seem so wrong. O. Palmer Robertson helpfully um, points out a a very close connection between this verse and another very important verse on this whole subject in the book of Genesis. It's Genesis 15, 6. It's a famous verse Paul also quotes in Romans when it says that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Another great Old Testament example of this doctrine of justification through faith alone. And in that context, Abraham also was being called to wait with patience for a promised future that he could not yet see. That was what it meant for him to believe God, is for him to trust in the promise that he could not yet see and that did not really seem possible to him at that time in human terms, but he trusted that God was telling the truth. That he would do what he said. See, this is where God's people always are in this life between promise and fulfillment. So much of what God has promised, he has already fulfilled. And that's an advantage of being New Testament Christians as we can look back, including at Habakkuk's time, and we can see how the Lord did keep these promises that he's telling Habakkuk to wait for. We can look back and see in history the destruction of the empire of Babylon and how they were laid low by the judgment of God in response to all of their arrogance and pride and idolatry. What God is telling Habakkuk to wait for did, in fact, take place is yet another reassurance to us of the way that the Lord will always keep his word. And that's just the beginning, because you can think of all of the many other Old Testament promises that the Lord has kept already in the time of fulfillment, in the birth, and the life, and the death, and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And see, now what God has done is in Christ... He has given to you many more precious and very great promises, as Peter says. 
And he is giving you still the same commission that he gave to Habakkuk and the the people of faith of his day, which is to wait with patient, trusting expectancy for both the judgment and the salvation that are yet to come at Christ's return. And the warning of this passage is to be careful that you don't start to bristle and get restless and impatient along the way. Be careful that you don't listen to the the tempter's whisper that maybe God isn't so trustworthy after all. Don't let your soul get puffed up. Don't take that path of self-reliance, of self-righteousness. You are to keep on humbly, patiently, trustingly, and expectantly waiting on the promises of God. If it seems slow to you, wait for it, Habakkuk says. It will surely come. It will not delay. It will come in God's perfect time. And between now and then, always remember, on the way there, by the grace of God, how will the righteous live? The righteous shall live by his faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us not just to hear this lesson, but to take it to heart. Help us to live by faith, we pray. And as you have fed our faith through your word, feed it now through the sacrament. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.